podcast series. I'm your host, Marvin O'Kello. As of June 2020, following the untimely death of George Floyd, I've taken on the role of diversity and inclusion officer for the Halifax Wanderers. Since that time, I've hosted a number of Zoom calls with Wanderers fans, members, partners, and others in our community. As of 2021, we have started the podcast as a means of continuing the conversation in a safe space. My aim is that by having these tough and sometimes awkward conversations, we can begin to break down barriers and strengthen a culture of diversity and inclusion. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Khan. Sarah has a unique background that combines entrepreneurship, event planning, and communications in growing up first-generation Canadian. With insight from her own mental health journey, she paints a picture of the successes and challenges through learning how to overcome being marginalized, both personally and professionally. Welcome, Sarah. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on your uh, podcast. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate uh, you being able to join and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So why don't we just jump into letting everyone know, how did we meet? Uh, you actually were presenting for uh, 40 Cups of Coffee, uh, talking about specifically your role with, as a diversity and inclusion officer. And a lot of the things that you had spoken about really resonated with me, especially about having open discussions about things that can be a little bit awkward. And I really wanted to be able to connect with you. And since then, we've been chatting quite a bit because I feel like we have very similar goals, but come at it from very different ways. Definitely. And we haven't just been chatting. We've been doing a lot of collaborating. And I can't mm -hmm. thank you enough again for putting me in touch with uh, Daniel. He did a great presentation to our committee that was really, really well received. So thank you for putting me in touch with him. Yeah, for sure. I'm so glad I could connect you. Definitely. He's, he's an incredible young man. I think we'll be seeing a lot more of him in the future. Not just us, but the world, I think, is going to be hearing that name a lot more. Mm -hmm. so. Absolutely. So, you know, on that call, um, we, we talked about, you know, things like how to start the conversation, but I want to dive a bit more about you. You know, it's, it is Asian Heritage Month. And um, from what I understand, you have a background, you know, specific to Asia. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah. So my parents immigrated from Bangladesh and I was born and raised in Canada. They came, first my father came as a student and my mother followed thereafter. And for my entire life, up until I was in my 20s, I was actually the only one in my entire family in this entire country, like my mom, my dad, and myself. Mm -hmm. um, we did have uh, cousins that moved into the States when I was in my 20s, but other than that, we were always on our own. So as an only child, I didn't really have anybody else to talk about coming from this different culture, because even though I was born here, I still had some, a lot of challenges that other people would experience as just coming uh, newly as new immigrants. My parents come from one of the most overpopulated and impoverished countries in the world. And I was actually, would I say fortunate and unfortunate to experience that kind of poverty uh, firsthand in being able to see what actually happens on the other side of the world as it relates to labor, child labor, sweatshops, um, and all that sort of thing. It made me a little bit jaded when I was younger, but it's really given me a big perspective as to how lucky, fortunate we are here in Canada. Yeah, we're very privileged in a lot of ways, for sure. And mm -hmm. so you were, you actually went over there a couple times, did you? I've been over there multiple times. So the very first time, I don't remember being there. I was only just two. But the time that I was one of the most significant times for me was actually when I was 
11 because we spent four months there and I was doing my own learning. Like there was no online at that time. And I got to really immerse myself into the culture because there was no choice. I was there for four months. And that's when I really got to experience some of the challenges that my family even had. I never realized what kind of difference there was between being lower class and upper class. Like the idea of a middle class is not really there. You're either one or the other. And honestly, it almost felt like my family was on the lower end of that. But even though they were, they still had servants and and stuff because there's always somebody who's less fortunate than you that you can always employ. And I really appreciated being able to see how you just keep, you know, reaching down and lifting people up. Mm. Um, And uh, I got to really, yeah, see that when I was, when I was 11 was the most significant such an interesting point you make too and I've honestly I've never really thought in much detail about the places like you know Asia and Africa um, that really there is not much of a middle class and you know I say that broadly with Africa and Asia but specific mm-hmm. places obviously you know like Nigeria and stuff fall outside of that mm-hmm. um, but it's such an interesting point because when you do have this two-class system it's crazy how much more collaborative it is than when there is the three class system with the middle class who almost a lot of times take for granted, you know, their privilege that they have. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely true. One of the things that I found was really hard, and this is something that like always kind of gets me, but people really talk about the fact that there shouldn't be sweatshops and that their child labor is terrible and all these sort of things. And really, if they didn't have those things there, the entire the economy would fall apart. So I'm not saying that that's a good thing to have. It means that other companies, corporations, businesses need to come in and pay people equitably with safe working conditions and all that sort of stuff, but to actually change it. But if you didn't have it, then all of those people would not have any money whatsoever. So it's this really weird system of unnecessarily evil in the lower of the lower class, because otherwise there would be no money whatsoever. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's something that, you know, people have debated for, for years and generations about how do we change this system that's already so ingrained in the economy and society, you know, these sweatshops and China sending everything to the rest of the world that, you know, it's such a reduced cost. How do we, especially in the, you know, pandemic world, especially where people don't have much money, it seems like the cycle is just built to continue. It's absolutely true. It takes some people to lead the way, like to pave the way for others to be able to do that, to create those processes that anybody can duplicate because, Really, that's the only way it's going to happen, but it just takes companies to do that. And I mean, there are specific companies that are extremely mindful of making those types of decisions, but it has to be, you know, more standard, more common for um, anybody to be able to do. So, Is yeah. there any specific companies you want to, you know, highlight, like, that you know of that are very... <laughs> Well, I mean, if you look at a lot of different B corporations, like certified B corporations, you'll see that they always try to balance people, planet, and profits. And I know, for instance, Arbon is one of those that actually do fair trade with their shea butter. And so that means an entire economy is being paid equitably. They're not the only ones. And I mean, I just, that's the, I, it comes to me like yeah. easiest because of what I do, but, um, but there are companies that do make sure that they are paying fair trade. And we hear about it a lot in terms of coffee and sugar, but not so much in other aspects. Um, yeah. And I mean, 
before we jump into what you do, I'm going to, one company that I can think of, or, you know, is, is Yeezys. And I don't know if you've heard, you know, in the last couple of years, Kanye has been really passionate about taking production of the Yeezys away from China and into the mm -hmm. U.S. Yeah. To the point he's even invested in a large, um, you know, ranch uh, in the States where a lot of the Yeezys are now produced. I don't think all of them are completely, you know, produced in, in the U.S., but I think his goal is to eventually be there. And like, it's crazy that somebody like Kanye, who's, you know, for lack of a better word, it's like not the most educated person in the world. He has a lot of life experience, mm -hmm. but not necessarily the most college degrees or anything like that. But mm -hmm. if somebody like that can do it, it, it yeah. blows my mind to think like, why well, can't more educated and people who have more resources think mm -hmm. of going the same route? Yeah, well, I can tell you somebody here, even locally, like uh, Twig and Feather, she's a designer. She did sweaters and all that sort of thing and originally because when she started off her business she did have to outsource from China to do the production because she couldn't that was that was what was needed at the time but now that's not what she does she makes sure that it's all produced here in Halifax Nova Scotia mm -hmm. and that the cotton is sustainable and all of these things so even a the simple like a, a small business owner is able to do that mm. you know it doesn't need a huge corporation or anything it's people like herself that were able to turn around their processes so that they could produce and manufacture here, but it was very intentional. They had to be very, very intentional about it. Definitely. And I, th I think that's really the key, you know, that you just said there, not just with, you know, making sure that products aren't coming from China and stuff, but just in anything and a lot of uh, diversity, which is the main you know topic of our conversation, you have to be intentional with mm -hmm. everything, your conversations, your, you know, your setup of your structure, your foundation has to have the intent to include, you know, certain things. And I can see why a lot of startups, um, you know, even like the Wanderers, you know, sometimes you have to get those cheap products just to get off the ground for profit margins. But yep. as long as you have it in the plans to once you get past that initial stage where, you know, maybe budgets and stuff might not be that high, that you can change your business model to then support local and these, you know, Canadian businesses and, you know, companies that aren't, you know, in sweatshops. Exactly. That ties well into my next question for you, Sarah. What, what is it that you do for a living? <laughs> well, my background is in marketing communications, specifically event planning. It's something that I was really good at and I loved. Um, but really, there was a huge deviation for me, and I now am an online health and wellness business builder. Uh, really, the biggest thing for me is that all of my experiences have just given me the platform to be able to talk openly about my mental health. I never used to believe in the concept of personal growth and the fact that I could actually make a difference in this world. I was very good at hiding everything about myself, uh, especially my mental health to the point that I was a joke, but it, it's not really that funny, but I was basically oh. pathological about how much I hid everything. And so my background in these things, like people just assume that I was always really happy and bubbly because yes, events are glamorous and I'm always kind of giddy and I have a lot of energy from the outset, but really like a lot of things were happening underneath. And so what all of these things, the online health and wellness business from my background in PR, I just had this kind of big realization that they gave me these platforms to be able to now be very open about who I am, where I came from, and some of the challenges that I have been uh, have been going through and continue to sometimes go through as well. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting, and it's I, I share a lot of that sentiments because I am one of those people that people know as someone who's bubbly and positive and all that, you know, and it, it's 
it's, it can be tough to keep that, that image, you know, and I'm lucky now that I'm in a place of work where, you know, I'm encouraged to take care of my mental health and, you know, we acknowledge all those things. And I'm very open with my work family about, you know, things that are happening outside of work um, because they do overlap, especially in, in my new role as a diversity inclusion officer. But that is the goal, right? Like that's mm -hmm. why even the podcast is called Together for Change because we want to change that status quo and make it so that more businesses are are allowing their staff to, you know, address their mental health and, and their personal life because you can't treat them as two separate buckets. A lot of places do. And my old work prior to the Wanderers, you know, they didn't care about my mental health. There was even days where I, I really, really needed a day off. Like there was one day yeah. I had a, a racist experience um, post-Trump getting inaugurated. And without going into too much detail, I, I was jumped by, by white guys here in Halifax and um, yelling Trump 2016, you know, because yeah. it was just the weirdest thing. But the next day, you know, I, I didn't want to go to work and I had called my boss, explained to them what happened. And they were like, you got to come to work. Yes, I know. And the thing is, is that, there, one of the things that I've noticed, at least from the pandemic, which is kind of a good thing, is that the conversation of mental health in the workplace has now kind of been exposed. It's not anywhere, like we haven't done anything about it necessarily, and we haven't, we don't know how to actually to deal with it yet as a, as a, as a culture, but at least that conversation now is being had that we need to actually talk about it a little bit more. You can't hide behind that anymore. And I think that companies are kind of feeling the, how awkward that is to even have that conversation because now they can't ignore it. Exactly. It's, it's really is becoming the elephant in the room and I'm really happy to be, you know, part of that, that shift. And, you know, you are too, Sarah, mm -hmm. um, but I want to be really more specific about, you know, your background and the, the the community that you grew up kind of conflicted in because you're somebody who even though as if somebody looks at you they're like oh okay she's she's a visible minority but at the same breath you were born here so what are what are some of the main issues you have faced with that you know where you have the physical but you tell people it's like I'm from here mm -hmm. so I think there's a couple of different fronts that I have to deal with this I grew up in Prince Edward Island, and when I was growing up there, there were very few different cultures. I was one of five brown families, essentially, on all of the island, if we have to talk about East Indian, in, in specifically East Indian. Mm -hmm. And so everybody knew who I was because of the fact that I was one of these few brown people. Um, and so there was very little multiculturalism. There was no diversity whatsoever. And although the islanders were nice in mm -hmm. general, and they are nice, I, I say this with not the negative connotation of the word, but there is like this ignorance about it because of the fact that they just had never been exposed to somebody like me and my family. So I was experiencing that a lot because there was a lot of assumptions about who I was and where I came from and comments even about like what I smelled like, what my food smelled like. I, I remember because my mother used to send me into school with hot lunches in a thermos. And if it smelled funny to people, they would make fun of it. And it was, it was, I would be like, mom, can you just send me into school with a hot dog? Like, and she was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that. Like, that's just not the way we eat. And yeah. I remember how difficult just those little things were on that end with mm -hmm. being part of a very small group of people growing up in PEI. 
Mm-hmm. The other half of that, though, is something, and this is not a popular conversation at all, is the fact that there, because there were so few brown families there, is that they also had a very specific impression about who I was, what I was doing, how the changes I was trying to make to adapt to Canadian culture. Had expectations so, for you. The expectations. And so here I am trying my best to fit in with the Canadian cultures, praying that I would be white, like I just wished I could be in so many ways. So I'm doing all of these things to try to adapt to being in the Canadian culture. And then those same adaptations were being criticized from the other families there. They didn't want their kids hanging out with me. They didn't like what I was saying. And then my parents, and also my parents divorced. So I was really alone because everybody else of those brown families, they were all together. The mother, the father, the grandparents, everybody. And even that is a cultural thing, right? Like divorce is really frowned upon in your culture, I believe, right? Culturally, it is very frowned upon. Now, religiously, it is completely allowed. But sometimes the culture, it dictates where the religion, like it's people are people, right? And so people have a tendency to change things based on their own perspective they shouldn't but they do and so from a cultural standpoint yes it's very frowned upon to have a divorce and my mother and my father were very are very good people like there was nothing wrong with them there was no violence there was none of those things in the household they Mm -hmm. just are better off as people not being together and and ultimately in Canadian culture, that's kind of understood, but not in East Indian culture. And so I was all the time criticized for what I was doing. And I would hear what they were saying. I, they would say it in earshot of me to make me feel uncomfortable because they thought they were better than me. And it was because of where they may have had a house and I lived in an apartment. They were still together and my parents were divorced. Like it was just all of these things. My mother was working several jobs because she was a single mom, but then the wife of the other family didn't have to work at all because she just didn't like. It's so crazy to me as people, especially like where we are visible minorities, like these other, you know, East Indian families would have been visible minorities and they, you know, face all this criticism from the white community, but then they, replicate it within their own communities and you know the black community some ways is 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 going through those changes too you know where black people hold each other to these ridiculous standards that can't be met which the same problem they're facing from white people so it really it really bothers me when people don't realize how ironic it is it's so ironic and also like i and i find East Indian culture, they don't talk about any of this stuff. Like it isn't acceptable to talk about mental health. Me talking about it in the first place is already frowned upon, which I do anyways. Or talking about uh, things that are happening with my family or how my family is aging and coming to talk about long-term care and the fact that I'm not automatically just taking in my mom for something, for instance, they're, they're all extremely critical about it, but they're really quiet about it. So you don't know what's happening because you're taught culturally to be very quiet about that. And unless you are in a profession that is say, for instance, like a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, any of those types of professions, those are the only ones that are considered valid. Anything else isn't, especially with me being in, having been in sales and even my online health and wellness business is in sales. Salespeople are looked as to be very like below 
like what is considered acceptable in society. So it's just, it's just one of those things. And so um, I'm constantly battling that even now. How do you deal with that? How, How do you deal with that, you know, on an ongoing basis? Well, I have to say, like, even having this conversation today when we were, I was, you say that this is awkward, like, this is a conversation, I'm very open about what I talk, but I, this is the first time I've ever talked publicly about these things that happen within my culture. And there's a couple of reasons for that is because I don't want people to think that my culture is horrible. We, it is a beautiful culture, like it really is. But the, it's some of the things that are set up within the culture are, are kind of backwards. Yeah. So I, I don't talk about it. <laughs> that's how I've, I've been processing it. I may talk. I think that's a very respectful way of summarizing it really. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to shed this horrible light because it's not like that overall. It's just, there are certain structures and how I deal with it is I basically have to separate myself from it. I actually avoided all Brown people throughout most of my university life and into adulthood because I couldn't deal with the judgment. I didn't want to deal with the judgment. And I, that's how I protected myself from it. You're taught to hide. You're taught to not show any of these vulnerabilities because these vulnerabilities are considered weakness and they don't ever want to be considered weak. Um, so it was like- well, I, we all are, we all, we all are. are. But yeah. I see their strength and vulnerability. I don't Agreed. see weakness. So, but they don't. They see it all as showing weakness. And you don't talk about it. You don't talk about what's happening at home. And so I just avoided it. Like if I have to be completely honest, I that's how I've dealt with it. That's how yeah. I'm dealing with it right now. I am worried. I have to, I'm making certain decisions as it relates to my mother right now that I have to worry about who within the Brown community is going to catch wind of what's happening and then try to accuse me uh, because I have my mother's power of attorney in finances as well as medical that I'm stealing from her or that I'm pushing her away or that I'm doing all of these horrible things because I'm not just taking my mom in with me. I physically can't right now, but even at that, it doesn't matter. It's the fact that I, I have to do everything to take care of my mom. Religiously, that's important as well. You take care of your parents. That is part of the, especially your mother. Like you obey God first and oh. your mother at second. Like it is always about obeying your mother. So the fact is, is that you're supposed to take care of your mother. I just take care of her in a way that's different, that isn't acceptable within it's the culture. your way, you know, and it works for you. And it's so funny how, especially in, <laughs> I don't know why a lot of these similarities, um in Asian and a lot of African cultures like there's this pressure like that mm-hmm. like you have to do things this way because this is the way our culture does it and like a lot of it doesn't leave room for change within time geography <laughs> and, and or person I mean it has to there has to be changes like I really honor our the culture I love I, it's beautiful like I just even when you see those kind of like those dances and you look at the saris and the jewels and that is essentially when I think a lot of the culture I think of the beauty of all of that stuff you know it, it is really like that it's so colorful and that's how I, I I like to see it but at the same time it's like that's not really the way it is with the people right like it's it's very black and white and there is mm. no movement from there and so you don't want to lose that culture and that beauty and the colors and the jewels and the sparkle and all that sort of stuff but you still have to adapt to change 
Definitely, and, definitely. And I think it's important, you know, as we acknowledge it is Asian Heritage Month, we have to celebrate, you know, mm-hmm. those things, but it shouldn't define us and we shouldn't look to always do things the way we did. Yeah, exactly. It can't be done that way. It's just, it's not the same world. It cannot be duplicated in the same way anymore. It may have worked before, but that's not the way it's going to work anymore. And if we don't realize that, and we're going to criticize the people who are trying to make those changes and find a way that does actually work, then it's just, you're always going to be like on, on opposite ends and fragmented and fighting with each other sort of thing. So I just avoid a lot of, a lot of those conversations with people in a public forum, especially because I, that's how I deal with it. Definitely. And I think that's wise. I've, I've learned that as I grow up too, that there's just some conversations not worth having with people, honestly, because there's some people who are just so stuck in their ways that like, you're just wasting your own energy and, you know, hurting your own mental health by even trying. With that being said, I do hope that a lot of those people who you might not want to engage one-on-one, you know, they take the time to listen to things like podcasts and stuff. So even though maybe one-on-one isn't the best way to deal with a lot of those people, I think there is still ways of encouraging and educating those people to change. I think for me, the biggest thing is, is that I just do it anyways. I just keep going because at this point, if they don't want to have anything to do with me and I'm not going to have anything to do with them, they're still going to have to watch me do it. Like it's still going to happen. I'm still going to do it. It's still going to go through this process and I'm still going to lead the way in doing it. So regardless of what their impressions are and what battles I might have to fight with them, it's still, Mm -hmm. I'm still, still doing it. Like it's, it's not going to change. And I hope that other people will adopt that as well. Definitely. I love that. And you, you really say it with your chest. You know, you, you, you're not shy about it. You, you're not non-committal. You've, you've made your decision and you're going with it. And I really, you know, commend you for that. And I really also commend you for not muting your voice and, you know, allowing people to hear your story and share your perspective and your opinion. It's really, you know, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's, it is, it is terrifying. I'm not scared to speak in public, but this particular conversation, because I am actively still dealing with it right now, it makes me nervous. Like I have to, I have to be completely honest. So, well, I mean, to all, you know, if any of those people are listening, I hope they understand that, you know, you're coming from a place of love and, and understanding, and there's just certain things that don't apply to everybody, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and that that's across the board. I think we need to treat people more personalized Um, with the way we interact with them and the way we judge them on them, not on how society sees things. So if someone's in a sales job and not a doctor or whatever, let's get to know what Mm -hmm. they do in that sales job and why they chose to do it. Because a lot of the times people have reasons um, for doing that. And there's so many Mm -hmm. new jobs too being created. Like how can you judge people on positions? Like I think in the last two years, there's all kinds of positions being created that never existed. Like the one I'm in right now. Yeah, exactly. What I find really interesting, and this is the entire idea of the inclusion aspect, is that we are always looking for these commonalities so that we can build these bridges together. But at at the same time, for me, like, although I really appreciate finding those commonalities, you have to celebrate how you're different as well. And at, at this point, like, especially within the culture there, if you're not part of the commonalities that they've dictated, there is no common ground. And if you are doing something that's completely different, there is definitely no celebration of that. Like <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And I mean, if you're doing the same things all the time, like what, what fun is that? When do you get innovation? You know, cause I'm somebody who really values innovation and change. So 
if we all just follow the same system, wear the same clothes, eat the same foods, do things the same way mm -hmm. that's for a very interesting life. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of that, though, curry is not curry powder. For anybody listening, curry <laughs> powder is not what curry is made out of. I need to be very clear. If I can say anything about my cultural heritage, is curry is not curry powder. That's a good point. Honestly, a lot of people don't realize that. Same way a lot of people don't in uh, North America don't realize that Chinese food in North America <laughs> is not, quote unquote, Chinese no, food when you go no, to China. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I actually have a hobby business as well in terms of like, that is my mission to teach people how to cook proper Indian food hmm. and realize that it is not curry powder. So <laughs> we'll definitely share any recipes you may have. I'm, I'm always starving Marvin. So show them my way. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. That, that's really great. And um, thank you for stepping out of your comfort zone because, you know, as I said in the intro, that's the only way we're going to break down barriers and and uh, create a more inclusive and diverse world. So thank you for doing your part, Sarah, and coming together from a ways to work together for change. Thank you, Marvin. Thank you for sharing my story. Go, 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 go.